This conference will now be recorded. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures, as always. Where else would our growth come from? Turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. And we've been, uh, I think we've had three classes in this chapter, maybe four. And um, we're up to verse four now. So that's a little slower than I thought we would be. It's a summary chapter with a lot of exhortations, a lot of practical commands, uh, such as let uh, Philadelphia continue and don't neglect Philizenia. Um, for by this, some have uh, entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves are also in the body. And now marriage. Marriage must be honored among all. And the marriage bed must remain undefiled. Two issues, honoring marriage and not defiling the marriage bed. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. We'll pick up on that uh, here this morning. Before we do get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling him on our Father in his faithfulness to lead us in the truth of his word. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day once again and the blessing we have to assemble together. And Father, for the plain language of Scripture. The word of God is very blunt in a lot of passages, and this passage is very blunt. And yet, Father, there are profound doctrinal realities we want to understand uh, beyond the simplicity of don't fornicate. <laughs> Father, we can preach don't fornicate in very short order, and uh, not, it doesn't take an hour to preach it. But there is uh, so much more, Father, to uh, to deal with related to our marriage in our marriage union in Christ. So, Father, I pray that you open our eyes to these truths, that we understand them for what they are. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so indeed, when we get to um, verse 4 here, uh, marriage is to be held in honor among all. The marriage bed is to be undefiled. That's uh, straightforward. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. And there's really two dynamics at work there. The fornication is one thing. Adultery is uh, is something else, and while they overlap, uh, they uh, they are in fact compounded for the discipline. So the adulterer is actually a fornicator and an adulterer, and he is set up for the compound, the double compound discipline on that basis. And so we'll be talking about these things here as well. Let me advance the slides to uh, verse four. There it is. Obviously, fornication has never been acceptable. <laughs> it's always been a sin. Uh, we don't wait to Hebrews 13 to have uh, fornication addressed in Scripture. Fornication and adultery have been destructive sins in every dispensation. Uh, prior to the church, of course, was the dispensation of Israel. And uh, fornication and adultery were addressed repeatedly in Mosaic law, also in wisdom literature. Uh, that uh, fornication and adultery were highlighted in the Proverbs as uh, the wisdom literature portrays what the law commands or what the law prohibits. 
And so we have prescriptive commands under law that are then descriptive portrayals in the Psalms and in the Proverbs. And so that's why it's it's marvelous to take teaching from the law and then reinforce it with Psalms and Proverbs in uh, in the descriptive uh, way that those texts will present the material. But even before law, even before the Jewish nation, even before the dispensation of Israel were the Gentiles. And so Job is representative of this, whereby uh, Job, uh, as a representative uh, Gentile in the dispensation of the Gentiles, you might recall just based upon his lifespan and uh, the length of years that Job lives, and then you track that with the uh, lifespans of the patriarchs, that uh, we can estimate that Job is roughly two generations uh, prior to Abraham. And so when you're looking at the, in fact, I think we have Job listed in the genealogies of Genesis 5 and Genesis 10. Uh, he's called Jobab in the uh, in the uh, list there. And probably his friends might have called him Bob for short or Job for short. And uh, when the book got written, they, they settled on Job as his nickname. But Jobab is what he's called in the genealogical listings. And we'll be demonstrating that for you in our uh, in our Genesis series coming up. So, um, getting our Bible ready to go to, uh, to demonstrate these things. There you are. And turning to Job 31. One of the defenses that Job makes, and of course, this is in the segment of the book where there's a lot of back and forth between his critics and himself. This is uh, almost the conclusion of that, actually, before we get to uh, the young man, Elihu, who steps up and has a, a significant portion of the book. But here in Job 31, he says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? And this is a, a marvelous text, especially coming as early as it's coming and related to uh, principles of, uh, of fornication and adultery, principles of the sexual sins that uh, Jesus himself is going to expand upon when he relates the overt sexual activity to the mental attitude sin that precedes it. In other words, as Jesus says, if you look upon a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed the sin of adultery in your heart as a mental attitude sin before it becomes a an overt sin. And uh, And so we get the teaching of Jesus on that in Matthew chapter 5. And uh, we'll be looking at that here in a moment, because that also is a, is a passage that's on our slide uh, to deal with. But uh, isn't it interesting how so early in the in the uh, history of humanity, in other words, just a few short generations after the flood and even, uh, you know, pre-Abraham, post-Noah time frame of the patriarchs, uh, Noah is most likely still alive at this point. Uh, Ham, Shem, and Japheth are certainly still alive at this point, given that, uh, that they live, uh, they outlive Abraham. And, uh, and we're talking the book of Job is pre-Abraham in this, in this time frame. Um, so here is a discussion. Uh, I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? And you say, well, what's wrong? What's wrong with, with, this is more than just get, you know, looking at, you know, hey, there's a virgin. I see her. No. The gazing at and the idea of, of, of mental attitude, sin, longing for, lusting after, uh, going from the uh, from the thinking about it to the planning it to the doing it, 
uh, all of that. Here's uh, here's Job giving a message that's so in tune with what Jesus says in Matthew 5. I find that extraordinary. And so much so that he even uses covenant language as a Gentile, using covenant language, making himself and his eyes party to the covenant. And um, and that's a useful phrase. In fact, I know a lot of ministries that relate to uh, pornography addiction, that relate to other issues. They will use this verse uh, in, in relationship to what we need to do to make sure our mind is pure uh, before we uh, even get into the, the, the bodily issues uh, that follow. So here's a dispensation of the Gentiles illustration for whereby we recognize that fornication and adultery were sin problems back then. And it doesn't take long, you know, uh, after the fall of man. And uh, you can see in Genesis, we're going to see the uh, very quickly, we're going to see uh, sin issues, including sexual sin issues, including the angels intruding themselves into human sexuality and propagating the Nephilim. And uh, and then doesn't take long and you end up with the homosexual issues in uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And and so it's not there's no question that in the in the Gentile world that fornication and adultery are uh, destructive sins. Clearly, then, when you get into Mosaic law and uh, at the Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, thou shalt not commit adultery. How how simple is that? Okay, <laughs> and uh, it's uh, it's pretty straightforward related to that, and uh, even in the Hebrew there, uh, starts with a low, and there it is, right? You got a low. Don't do it. The only Bible that uh, was misprinted was a very famous early King James Bible called the Adulterer's Bible, where uh, sure enough, in the late in the early 1600s. There was a publication where they left the word not out of uh, out of this verse. And so the, the command said, you shall commit adultery. And it was a tremendous scandal. And uh, in the, the British government ordered the confiscation of all the uh, all uh, printed texts. And uh, to my knowledge, they got them all and they were all destroyed. Uh, that there was uh, I think if there was one in existence today, it would be pretty famous and pretty um pretty uh, uh, valuable, I think, just as a, as a quirk of, of church history. Anyway, don't do it. Thou shall not commit adultery. And this is right up here with thou shall not steal, thou shall not bear false witness, thou shall not murder. Um, you know, murder is first. Uh, no, honor your father and mother, then murder, then commit adultery, then steal. All these things, you think about these sins that are typically also classified as crimes that because they contribute to the breakdown of society. They, they are offenses against others in your community. And so, yes, there are sins against God and his standard of righteousness. They're usually also incorporated in, in legal codes as, uh, as crimes against the society. And, uh, and adultery is right there, right after murder, and how destructive it is to culture. We're going to have more to say on that and the destructiveness of it uh, here shortly. Deuteronomy 22, verses 20 and 21. And this is uh, where it's, it's actually a feature in the entire culture of the Jewish people for their uh, function as a holy people, that a holy people before the Lord had to have holy lives, sanctified lives, and that included sexual sanctification and included sexual holiness. It's not the totality of holiness, but it is a big part of it. And so uh, because it's so easy to fall into and it's so um, 
common actually as a as a sin application and obviously if it's a if it's a temptation and a snare for believers with doctrine imagine what kind of a temptation and snare it is for believers without doctrine or what kind of a temptation and snare it is for unbelievers who uh, have no reason not to fornicate uh you know i mean dogs bark cats meow sinners sin so why would a why would an unbeliever not fornicate it you know i mean honestly sex is fun it feels good why not do it so uh, from a from a from an atheist unbelieving worldview, without the word of God, without a standard that says it's it's uh, it's wrong, then why not? See, because it's fun. That's what an unbeliever would would uh, would understand. And so in Deuteronomy chapter twenty, you've got an issue here with a uh, a uh, man and a wife, and they get married. And then the man determines that she was not a virgin. And so this becomes a charge. And it's, uh, it's, it's a, it's a criminal charge. And it's a matter for the court to deal with. And the whole, the families get together, the clans get together. The matter of virginity is a matter of public record in ways that, uh, our, uh, 21st century American culture maybe, um, is gonna, is gonna wrestle with. So he charges her with shameful deeds and he publicly defames her. And said, and this is what Joseph did not want to do when he learned that Mary was pregnant. Okay, Joseph, when he learned that Mary was pregnant, did not want to apply the Deuteronomy 22 principle. He could have, and biblically he should have, but the angel comes to him and explains, no, she's still a virgin. She's a pregnant virgin, but that's because of the miracle. And uh, don't be afraid to take her as your wife, and you're going to be the stepfather. You're going to raise you're going to be the adopted human father of the God man, savior of the universe. So, um, the, the, the understanding of Joseph and Mary in, uh, in Bethlehem is significant because, and it comes from here. Okay. And so he, uh, he does not divorce her and, uh, which an engagement is, is a, is a marriage and he would have to divorce her. Um, anyway, that's the Joseph and Mary story. Let's get back to this one. So, uh, in this case, you got a husband and a woman. They're married. Uh, and he now is convicted that she was not a virgin, okay, uh, on their uh, honeymoon, on the, the morning after the wedding. And so he publicly charges her with this, publicly defames her, says, I took this woman. When I came near her, I did not find her a virgin. So the girl's father and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of the girl's virginity to the elders of the city at the gate, okay? And that's why this is communal. This is why this is this is um, part of their procedures, and it's very public in ways that that we're not uh, maybe comfortable with in our sensibilities. And our, it's amazing what we're comfortable with and not comfortable with, uh, and and uh, how far we've degenerated. All right. So the girl's father shall say to the elders, "I gave my daughter to this man for a wife, and he turned against her." And but they've got proof; they've got evidence. See, so. Um, Behold, he has charged her with shameful deeds. There we go. Saying, I did not find your daughter a virgin, but this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. They shall spread the garment before the elders of the city. And so it's on display and it's not, you know, we, we think who wants to look at that, you know, but this is why it's kept. This is why the parents keep it. This is why it's it's the procedure okay and and it's necessary in case of false accusations and uh, and the fact that this is kept will will hinder uh, a lot of false accusations from being made all right 
So the elders of the city shall take the man and chastise him. This is, uh, you know, a frivolous lawsuit has consequences. They shall find him a hundred shekels of silver. Uh, so there's a anniversary or there's a wedding gift for you and uh, give it to the girl's father because he publicly defamed, publicly defamed a virgin of Israel. This is how serious it is that her reputation must be protected. Her father, her brothers, her clan, they all have this. Okay. Read Song of Solomon sometime and read about the woman and her brothers and what their concern is, not only for her reputation, but also for her attractiveness, also for her physical beauty and features that that they lament the fact um, that uh, their sister is not as developed. Anyway, some of these things we read and and we struggle with uh, being, you know, 4,000 years separated in time and space from uh, from their culture anyway here's the issue and uh, even more than the hundred shekels of silver is that she shall remain his wife and he cannot divorce her all his days consequence for this public uh, de- uh, uh, defamation is uh, is now this is uh, this is locked in for life and no um, this is a life sentence with no possibility of parole okay or or uh, <laughs> of uh, divorce in uh, in this consequence. All right. And so this is the, the seriousness of it. And I think um, in addition to this too, uh, why is this so serious? Well, because it's required that she stays a virgin. And if she does not, if she commits harlotry, then that is, that has such, it's, it's damage to her. It's damage to her family. It's damage to her to her clan, to her tribe, to the nation. And it's damage. We talk about damaged goods, right? It really is damaged goods for the non-virgin entered into the marriage contract. Remember, uh, this, uh, in, in the arranged marriages of the ancient world in this culture, that it's not just a man and a woman that are together. It's the clans that are being brought together and, uh, the, the increased value to both clans. Uh, by the the connection between them in, in, increases the value and benefit now to both families to both clans and uh, and so if in fact she's not a virgin in fact she's a harlot then the father has a very diminished value um, he's not going to be able to arrange a beneficial marriage to his clan he is um, probably going to be limited to maybe a concubine uh, contract that his uh, his harlot daughter is uh, the best he's going to be able to do would be um, of, a, a, of a of a secondary marriage kind of a thing uh, maybe you know in a in a in a in a different way all right so um, it's as hard for us to relate to this about when you're when you're bargaining your daughter with another clan trying to get the best deal you can. We don't do that anymore. At least our nation doesn't. Other other nations do. So uh, this would be maybe this is something that uh, would be better if uh, if uh, Eliezer uh, maybe were to teach this or his dad could teach this uh, as a pastor from India and the arranged marriages that still happen in India or uh, arranged marriages in uh, Cameroon, arranged marriages in, in Nicaragua, in uh, no, not Nicaragua, but in um, Nigeria. And uh, pastor friends of mine that have arranged marriages, 
and uh, you learn to love the person that you were assigned <laughs> because it was expected and it's necessary and it's also beneficial to your marriage uh, to uh, learn to love the other person. All right. So it's not on the slide, uh, but if you want to pencil in as well, um, backing up from Deuteronomy to Leviticus, Leviticus 21, Leviticus 21 and verse 13, the, uh, it was required for the high priest. The high priest had to marry a virgin and, uh, any priest actually had to marry, uh, had to marry, uh, a lesser priest could marry a widow, but the high priest couldn't even marry a widow. None of them could marry a divorced woman. Um, and uh, the, a lower priest could, could marry a widow, but the high priest couldn't even marry a widow or a divorced woman or a harlot. It was required for the high priest. It said, he shall take a wife in her virginity. And you realize this is uh, this is pretty blunt. And it's it's classifying non-virgins in three categories. Okay, uh, it says a widow, or a divorced woman, or one who is profaned by harlotry. Those are the only three non-virgins that exist. Otherwise, you have a virgin, a widow, a divorced woman, or one who is profaned by harlotry profaned by harlotry. These he may not take, but rather he is to marry a virgin of his own people so that he will not profane his offspring. And uh, what are the consequences of a non-virgin and the children she bears related to different things? Biblically, okay? Talking biblically now. For I am the Lord who sanctifies him. Okay, so... This uh, this is critical, and, and keep in mind the the inheritance, the the land uh, blessings. The um, you, you don't want a high priest to have a child that's not even his, who then becomes the next high priest, and you end up with a whole chain of high priests after that that aren't even Levitical, that aren't sons of Aaron, because uh, she was not a virgin, and now there's question as to who. Uh, the the paternity is of uh, of this child that she bears um, in uh, in that application. So anyway, this is what it is. Now, by the way, when you're using this text to teach your children, you have young children and or teenagers, or uh, you're you're raising up the next generation, and at whatever age you feel is appropriate for the young person to learn these things. Uh, but when you're teaching the facts of life and teaching about human sexuality. This is a, this is a not a bad text to go to or the proverbs that we're going to see next. Go to these passages, but point out that um, the only options for non-virgins that are eligible for marriage. Obviously, a married woman also is is a non-virgin, but uh, she's not eligible for marriage, so she's not mentioned in this text. But a widow, a divorced woman, and a harlot. A widow, a divorced woman, or a harlot. Those are your only options for non-virgins. And so this is proof. I mean, this is undeniable testimony that Scripture says, along with what we had in Deuteronomy 22. Back to Deuteronomy 22. If the charge is true that the girl was not found a virgin, then they shall bring the girl out to the doorway of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death. So you become a newlywed widow the next morning. 
The men of her city shall stone her to death because she has committed an act of folly in Israel. And notice, see, when, when our culture decided that premarital sex was no big deal, our culture abandoned the seriousness that Scripture portrays it with. Stone her to death. She has committed an act of folly in Israel by playing the harlot in her father's house. It's called harlotry. Any premarital sex is called harlotry. By the way, it's the same word, fornication. Would you rather use fornication? Fornication is, uh, see, we get, we get, fornication seems so Elizabethan. It seems so 17th century. <laughs> Fornicate. You know, it's not a word we use in 21st century American uh, language. I wish we would. We got to bring it back. Got to get it more in, in, in vogue. Um, but it's also the word for harlotry. It's the same word. To fornicate means to commit harlotry. To commit harlotry means to fornicate. The Greeks call it pornos, porneia. And so anything that is outside of marriage is porneia. It's that simple. You know, the, the Bible is so blunt and, and God loves using these terms. It's like Jew and Gentile, right? You have a term that's exclusive and then a term that applies to everything else. So a Jew is a Jew, and then a Gentile is everything else. A Roman, a Greek, a Egyptian, an American, a you know, whatever, a Russian, a, a Ukrainian, it doesn't matter. As long as it's not a Jew, it's a Gentile. So that applies to everything else imaginable. Now, same thing with sex, okay? You have the marriage bed that Hebrews 13.4 calls it. It's called the marriage bed. Sexual intercourse between a man and a woman is called the marriage bed. That's the term. Everything else. <laughs> everything else. Premarital, extramarital, homosexual. I mean, we can even get to some pretty ugly things. All right. And I, I don't want to go there, but anything that's not a man and a woman in marriage, which includes, you know, unmarried teenagers in the backseat of a car, okay? Unmarried, that includes this girl here in Deuteronomy 22, who thought she could pass herself off as a virgin and got caught. And so she's put to death. It's the death penalty for premarital sex. All right, passing yourself off as on your wedding night, okay? Anyway, there's other passages, other uh, facets of Mosaic law that address this, but let's uh, let's move on. Proverbs 5, well, almost the whole chapter, Proverbs 5. Now, this is the illustration. This takes principles of the law and vividly portrays it in a poetic narrative. And so, yeah, the, the Ten Commandments says, don't commit adultery. But Proverbs now in wisdom literature, in the poetry of Proverbs, it demonstrates illustrations and, and demonstrates why and, and damage that's done and so forth. So, my son, give attention to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding, that you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey. And smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Sharp as a two-edged sword. 
There was a question that was asked. I just saw it on the pop-up. Yeah, same penalty for men as well, correct? Uh, I believe so, but I don't have a biblical example of that. But, yes, I would assume so. If the man was – for premarital sex on the man, yes. If the, if the man was caught uh, defiling a virgin, yes. Equal, uh, equally applied to men and women. All right. Anyway, here's Proverbs 5. So the lips of the adulteress drip honey, very seductive and uh, very smooth, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood. There's a consequence down the road. Might be fun now. Hey, it's a fun one-night stand, but what's the price you're paying? Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable, and she does not know it. See, um, the light, the promiscuous life is not just physically promiscuous. It's not just a physical instability. There is a soul instability. And they, they reinforce and feed each other. And it just gets worse the more that it's done. Now that my sons listen to me, do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Don't even be in that part of town. Or you will give your vigor to others, your years to the cruel one. Strangers will be filled with your strength. Your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. And you groan at your final end. So you have a physical price to pay. You have a financial price to pay. And it's not pleasant at the end of your life. When your flesh and your body are consumed and you say, how I have hated instruction and my heart spurned reproof. You're paying a physical consequence for the uh, for that life. And you you should have known better. You were told better. You were warned. I have not listened to the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to my instructors. I was almost an utter ruin in the midst of the assembly in the congregation. Drink water from your own cistern. Now, this is a metaphor, but it's still, we we're still talking about um, sexuality. We're still talking about uh, God's provision now. We switch to the, the blessings of, of marriage. It's your own cistern. So uh, when you get married, now you've got a cistern. Hey, she's now yours. Fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. We should have gotten to this last week. This would have been a good Mother's Day verse. Anyway, why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? Anyway, this is this is the, the graphic portrayal this is uh, the vivid description in Proverbs, wisdom literature, and we can teach this to our children, that uh, don't be exhilarated. Yeah, passing pleasures of sin, and, and yeah, there's a thrill. Don't fall for it. Don't fall for it. Proverbs 6, 24 through 29. Again, the word of God will bless you to keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread, and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. So you see that tandem. There's harlotry and adultery. You know, what Hebrews 13 says, fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Both of them. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? If you think you're getting away with it, you're getting away with nothing. 
there is a price to pay. So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. Down to verses 32 through 35. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense, or he's actually heart deficient. Lacking heart, heart deficient. You do real heart damage with uh, adultery. And that's not the chest cavity or a blood pumping organ. It's your heart, the core of your being. Your cardia in the Greek, the lave in the Hebrew. And it's self-destructive behavior. He who would destroy himself does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find. His reproach will not be blotted out. Reproach will not be blotted out. For jealousy enrages a man. He will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom. He will not be satisfied that you give many gifts. You know, a thief can at least return restitution and uh, return sevenfold what he stole and so forth. You can make restitution for stealing. There's no restitution possible for adultery. It's a death sentence, and the uh, the enraged, jealous man will not be satisfied with anything else other than other than your death. Of course, Jesus addressed to this in Matthew five. There's other proverbs, by the way. Proverbs five, Proverbs six, Proverbs seven, Proverbs eight, Proverbs nine. Maybe not Proverbs eight, but five, six. Seven and nine, I know for a fact, have uh, have these sexual exhortations from parents in the child training uh, applications. All right, so I didn't give you all of them this morning. I just gave you a sample. Matthew 5, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust in her, lust for her, has already committed adultery with her in your, his heart. Okay, and so we discussed that at the very beginning when we looked at Job 31, where he made a covenant with his eyes. Just wanting to do it means you've done it in your mind. You've done it in your heart. Such sins have personal and geographical consequences. You realize that? Some people don't realize this, especially the uh, the dirt-worshipping tree-huggers, the God-haters, the Bible skeptics. Uh, they, uh, they've got a whole different idea for what pollution is all about. Let me tell you what pollutes the land and what pollutes your own soul is these sexual sins along with murder bloodshed will do it but also fornication will do it leviticus 18 24 through 30 and when you back up a little bit in the context of leviticus um 18 what do you have you got all these sexual sins okay and uh you can read through them on your own um you know incest, I haven't talked about that yet, or, or uh, adultery, or some of these other sins, homosexuality, uh, sleeping with a man the way you would sleep with a woman, animals. I mean, there's some real disgusting things here. Abominations. Abominations. And so there are certain sins, right? Sin is sin, but some sins have other realities, Okay. That uh, homosexuality and bestiality, these are beyond, yes, they're sexual sins. They're also unnatural abomination sins, perversions that aren't even humanly natural and normal. All right. Do not defile yourselves by any of these things. You are personally defiled. This is this is spiritual. This is this is in the spiritual defilement. Remember, the girl in Deuteronomy, she profaned herself with harlotry. Do not defile yourself. 
by any of these things. You end up being personally defiled. Your soul is defiled. It's not, you can't put a condom on this. This is personal defilement. For by all these, this is not, we're not even talking viruses and diseases here. We're talking about the defilement of your soul. For by all these, the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. So if this is the trend, if a, if a nation is known for being just so sexually free as our nation is, uh, that, that's a defilement to the, to the persons and to the nation. By all these, the nations which I am casting out before you become defiled. For the land has become defiled. Notice that? Personal and geographical consequences. The very land has become defiled. The land itself has become defiled. Therefore, I brought its punishment upon it, so the land has spewed out its inhabitants. And, uh, you know, when the, uh, when the Christians were brought to the Western Hemisphere and the um, pagans that were here prior to in the pre-Columbian pagans that were here, I'm talking about the, the, the Native Americans, and their cannibalism and their human sacrifice and their slavery and their rape and their um, sexual, profligate sexual uh, perversions, all of that was defiling the land, and the land was ready to vomit them. So the land vomited the Native Americans. And uh, the uh, the consequences, when, when I'm, I'm talking just the sovereignty of God, when he brings Europe to the Western Hemisphere, okay, and when those cultures met, the uh, the the plague went one direction and one direction only. And uh, the the Europeans did not encounter America pox, but the uh, the Native Americans, ninety percent of them, died with the the uh, the disease. Anyway, biblically, what was happening? God causes the rise of nations, causes the fall of nations. He brings peoples to uh, to a conclusion. And that's what he did in uh, colonial America. All right. The land has spewed out its inhabitants. But as for you, you are to keep my statutes, my judgments, shall not do any of these abominations, neither the native nor the alien who sojourns among you. So if you're not a citizen, but you're an alien sojourning here, you, you live by these laws. You live by these expectations. Otherwise, the land will spew you out. If you defile it. All right. Whoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do so shall cut off from shall be cut off from among their people. Thus, you are to keep my charge, not practice any of the abominable customs which have been practiced before you. So as not to defile yourselves with them. I am Yahweh, your Elohim. So sexual sins have personal and geographical consequences. The sexual abominations have even more. They cause land vomiting. Now, so every age has had an expectation to be sexually pure. But the dispensation of the church, above all other stewardships, portrays marriage in a glorious way, which magnifies the significance and tragic consequences of fornication and adultery magnifies the significance and tragic consequences of the fornication and adultery. 
So now we've, we're compounding it even more. Because if in the Old Testament, if adultery uh, was a sexual sin and an offense, it's even more so now for the bride of Christ. If the bride of Christ commits adultery, now we have triple compound uh, discipline because now we're also attacking the Christ himself and the image of Christ in the church in a way that no, no Old Testament fornicator would have done. Okay. So David fornicated. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. David's the Old Testament example. You know, the best example of all best. The, uh, the most obvious adulterer of the Old Testament. And, uh, and, and so the, the, the compound discipline, plus then he became a murderer, trying to cover his tracks. But, uh, in the adultery and the sexual sin that David committed, he did not, uh, dishonor the image of Christ in the church. Because he was never a part of the Christ in the church. He was not a New Testament believer baptized in the union with Christ. He was not bride of Christ. No Old Testament saint was. And so when we see what happens now in the church age, let's look to Ephesians 5. Let's look to Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. And um, here we go. Again, the point is this. The dispensation of the church above all other stewardships portrays marriage in a glorious way. So, you know, Adam and Eve and their marriage, Abraham and Sarah and their marriage, uh, you know, David and Bathsheba and their marriage. You know, any there are Old Testament marriages that had Old Testament principles to follow. All the wisdom literature of thou shalt not commit adultery and all of that. So, um, you know, think of Boaz and Ruth. Their marriage is a great marriage. The book of Ruth that, that portrays it. But they were not church. Boaz and Ruth do not portray Christ in the church. We do. And so um, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, Ruth was expected to be in subjection to Boaz uh, in consequence of Eve's sin and the divine order of creation, but not as to the Lord in the way that Christian wives today are expected. You see the difference? So the subjection then was one thing. The subjection now is magnified. The significance and consequences are magnified. For the husband is head of the wife. Boaz was the head of Ruth, but not as Christ is head of the church. Boaz's headship is different from headship today. The Christian headship today has a magnification and a significance beyond anything that any Old Testament marriage would have communicated. Okay. An Old Testament marriage uh, was designed by God as uh, volition, marriage, family, and nationalism was designed by God. They were divine institutions for human temporal life blessings. There were principles that were ex expectations. And there were sins, adultery and fornication, for example, by the way, you have a lot lower divorce rate in your nation when the adulterers are executed. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, a lot more widows out there uh, eligible for remarriage as opposed to uh, the, the, the uh, 
divorce epidemic and so forth that might be exhibited here today. Anyway, so there's submission and there's headship. There has always been submission. There has always been headship, but not with the the mystery of Christ in the church in view. Only now, only in the church age are these things real. Okay, and so the uh, the uh, the recognition of this. Hopefully, we can see it for what it is. All right. Um, wife as unto the Lord, husband as un, as uh, head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. Okay, that's a uh, reality for today that was not true in uh, Old Testament marriages. So as the church is subject to Christ, also wives ought to be their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church, gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. This is the thing. Corporately members of the body of Christ. Shall I take my members then and make them members of a harlot? May it never be. And so this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. We've been studying mystery doctrine and mystery person in our Colossian series, and this is uh, this is where we're hitting it here. All right, and so it's unique, it's magnified, it is intense. Let's look at First Corinthians six. And if there ever there was a church that needed teaching on sexual purity, it was the Corinthians, because their town was legendary. And I expect that many of their members got saved out of this lifestyle. And uh, many of their members felt that uh, they could continue this lifestyle because their sins are forgiven. Hey, why not? Our sins are forgiven. Let's, uh, you know, do what we're going to do. They're paid for anyway. Why not? Because this is why not. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute, may it never be. So, and this is true. See, this is this is why it's so much bigger than marriage. First Corinthians, when we get to the next chapter, chapter 7, it says, you don't own your body, your wife does. And your wife doesn't own her body, the husband does. That mutually, reciprocally, the, the two members of the marriage have ownership of the other member's body. And so, but this this chapter, before you get to that chapter, this chapter highlights the fact that your bodies are members of Christ. So you've been bought with a price that, uh, you know, are you going to take that, that body part and give it to a harlot when it belongs to Christ? Shall I take away the members of Christ, make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For it says the two shall become one flesh. So uh, this is true for any. And, and remember, this is biblical definition of harlotry. This is any unmarital sex. It's not necessarily a 
don't think uh, the prostitution has to be professional or paid or, or anything like that. It's any non-marital harlotry. And so uh, a one-night stand, a, a, a single fling or whatever, it's uh, the two become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. So there's a one spirit relationship. Okay. If you think uh, sex is just a physical thing, think again. It's physical, it's spiritual, it's emotional. Flee fornication, immorality, harlotry. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the fornicator sins against his own body. So stealing, anger, uh, covetousness, gossip, you know, name all the, all the non-sexual sins in the book. Even murder does not defile your body the way that sin does, the way that fornication does. The fornicator sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So when a believer, when a church-age believer fornicates, that is a worse sin than David's fornication. It's a worse sin than any Old Testament fornication you can point to. It's a worse sin than Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a worse sin because this is a member of the body of Christ, a part of the temple of the Holy Spirit, and you are profaning those things with your fornication. The significance and the tragic consequences are magnified. First Thessalonians 4. Verses 3 through 8. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, you abstain from sexual immorality. You abstain from porneia, from fornication. That each of you know how to possess, how to own your own vessel in sanctification and honor. And so just like Proverbs 5, you are, you are rejecting the, the harlot. And you are embracing your own well, your own cistern, your own, the wife of your youth. Possessing your own vessel. She's the weaker vessel and she's yours. Same word vessel that you have in uh, in First uh, Peter 3. And uh, it's the same vessel. And not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Say, not simply in the in the the physicality of of um, atheistic fornication, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. See, this is what adultery is. It's it's fraud against your brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Remember the avenger. Remember the blood avenger? Remember the uh, where you had to flee to a city of refuge because the avenger, the blood avenger was going to come after you? And that was in the case of murder in, in, in the Levitical cities of refuge. All right. Yes, the vessel is with respect to your spouse, not your own body. So God is the avenger in these things. 
Same, this perfect agreement with Hebrews 13. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. God is the avenger in these things. Just as we told you before and solemnly, solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So the sexual sins, it's magnified. It's so much more tragic. As, as church age believer priests, we are expected to be completely devoted to the Lord spiritually. And, uh, there should be a reflection of that in, uh, in, uh, our, in our sexual life. First Peter 2.11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Remember we talked about how unstable that lady was in Proverbs, that it's not just a physical instability, but it it, it damages the soul. She's unstable in all her ways and does not know it. These uh, fleshly lusts wage war against the soul. And so uh, the the impact of this, uh, a dysfunctional uh, Sex life leads to a dysfunctional soul. And uh, here's the urging. Again, put a condom on that. <laughs> okay. Um, the, these are the warnings. Okay. And and the world says, as long as you don't get the girl pregnant, do whatever you want to do. As long as you don't uh, get a disease, do whatever you want to do. And, uh, and even if you get a disease, we can treat most of them. So have fun. Okay. Uh, oh my goodness. The, the, the atheistic view is, is so damaging. Failing to see the spiritual element, failing to heed the biblical warnings. Waging war against the soul. Against the soul. There should be something different. People should see us and say, wow, that's a holy people. That's a different people. Not uh, legalistic, goody tissues, better than you, arrogant types, but humble and holy before the Lord. As a witness and a testimony, as it says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the days of his day of visitation. They're going to remember your holiness when they stand before the Holy Savior and uh, get cast into the lake of fire. All right. So the significance and consequences are so much more, which gets us to verses five and six. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Let me get our Bible back up here. Whoops. There we go. So we're coming to the end of this opening paragraph. One through seven is a unit. Some people say one through eight. All right. So, Philadelphia, keep it going. Philozenia, don't neglect it. Philarguria, the love of money. Ooh, that's a problem. Okay? We have our third Phil in this, in this passage. Our, fir- our third Philos compound. And it deals with the love of money. And uh, we had Philadelphia, love of the brethren. Philozenia, love of strangers. Now we have the love of money. Phil Arguria. And uh, this one is negated with an alpha privative. So we are negating, negating the love of money. Keep your uh, lifestyle a, uh, 
love keep your lifestyle love of money free <laughs> keep your lifestyle love of money free it's hard to hard to render it in the it's philagoras in the greek it's hard to render it really it's the very first word in the sentence is ah philagoras right there ah philagoras and so it's another philos compound and just like we had with philadelphia and just as we had with philozenia it's uh it's it's emphatic it's right there at the front of the sentence ah philagoras ha tropos your character, your way of life, your lifestyle, your um, your ways, your your um, your habits, your ruts. <laughs> the uh, the it's not your walk, it's not your peripateo, it's not your conduct. Although it kind of is conduct. Tropos is a funny term because it it's it's almost synonymous with four other terms, but it's so not quite synonymous with those four other terms and almost becomes a almost becomes a hybrid of, of a bunch of them so it's, it's similar to parakaleo your walk your manner of life is similar to some other expressions but it's your it's your tropos it's your habits it's your customs it's your um it's your ruts make sure that if you're going to be in a rut make sure that the rut you're in is a non-money loving rut don't be a money lover Anyway, however you express it, the the writer wrote it in such a way so that the the philos link jumps out at you, similar to how the philos link. Remember when I colored Philadelphia and Philozenius right there. And so uh, this time it's it's philos with a uh, a negative in front of it. Don't be a money lover. Don't be a money lover. All right. So Philadelphia and Philozenia are now followed by ah Philagoras, not loving money, not loving money. It doesn't mean we're sloppy. It doesn't mean we're uh, we're just throwing around like uh, like it grows on trees or who cares. Um, we're still we have wisdom for how we how we use money. We're not fools when it comes to money, but we don't love it. I hope that makes sense. We we know it for what it is. It is a grace blessing from God. And he's he's blessed it with us so that we can enjoy it. And he's blessed us with it so that we can share it. He did not bless us with it so that we would love it. And that's not uh that's not why he blessed us with it. It is not to be loved. And uh, we're going to see this time and time again. So this becomes how are we doing on time? We got a few minutes left. All right. The um do I really want to get in? Yeah, let's 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 hit these. All right. First Timothy three three. The elder. If uh if you got a man and I don't care if he's got the pastor teacher gift, and I don't care if he's fluent in Greek and Hebrew, and if he's uh and if he's slick, if he if he's uh if he's got an oratory like uh like uh, nobody's business and man that guy can he can he can preach it right he's a slick talker he's an orator he's got all of the he's got a, a pulpit presence like like you won't believe anyway you see where i'm going with this 
And he might even have the right gift. He might even be trained in Greek and Hebrew. And he might be solid on his theology. And thank God he's premillennial. He's dispensational. He's not a Calvinist. Everything else is working great. His theology is amazing. But he's a drunk. That's going to be a problem. Okay? <laughs> or he's a fighter. He solves problems with his fists. He just, you know, that's that's not good for the pulpit. That's not good for the pastor. Can't be pugnacious. Can't be, he has to be gentle. He has to be peaceable. You know, if he if he's going to start a fight at the drop of a hat and, and drop the hat, you know, to start, give himself an excuse. No, he's got to be peaceable. And then the last phrase, he has to be aphelagoras. Free from the love of money. He can't be a money lover. If, he's, <clears throat> if he loves money, that's going to affect his ministry. It's going to affect his preaching. It's going to affect his how he deals with the congregation. He's, he's a hireling, not a shepherd. It's going to be a problem. So if we notice that's a character trait early in a man's training, then we we work on that. We train. We uh, we we work on that. You know, this is. This is for the overseer. These are the things that have to be dealt with before the man is placed in the office. He uh, he can still have issues while he's training for the office, but hopefully the training will remedy those things before he's placed in a pulpit somewhere. Hopefully that makes sense. All right. So that's First uh, Timothy three three. We also have in First Timothy. The perspective on wealth that comes in chapter 6 and verse 10. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. So if you, if you don't take the alpha off of the off philagoros, you get philagoros, you get the love of money. And it's, uh, it causes all kinds of issues. It's a root that has all kinds of things that grow out of it. And some by longing for it, where the love becomes a longing, and this is the problem, is that this philos this rapport you know you can have philos with a brother you can have philos with a stranger you can't have philos with money even though you try to because the money doesn't love you back and uh so that that mutual reciprocal fellowship rapport of philos is just not happening and you start you start having philos for money and and it, it gets perverted very quickly and you start longing for it more and more and so then it becomes a longing because it's not returned and uh, it's like, uh, you know, a crush on somebody that doesn't know you're alive and they don't return it. So, you know, what kind of love is that? Love of money. It's the root of all kinds of evil. Some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith, pierced themselves with many griefs. It's a trigger to leave ministry. So you can't have a man in the office of overseer that has that as a problem. Second Timothy 3, 2. This is descriptive of the end times. And here we are. The last days of the church, when men are philautos, lovers of self, and they buy every self-esteem book in the in the uh, in the Christian bookstore, and uh, they wrote half of them, and they're living the other half, lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, and it goes on, brutal, haters of good. Some of those we uh, we've seen in other studies. Luke 16, 14. I'll have to close with this. I'm running out of time. The Pharisees were lovers of money. Did you know that? Listening to all these things, they were scoffing at him. (laughs) 
And that's the problem with a know-it-all. You can't tell them anything. And with a money lover, they're just not going to get it. The money lover will not understand you when you are not a money lover. All right. Well, I'm out of time. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this class. Thank you for truth. Thank you for the book of Hebrews. And I pray we understand, you know, in some ways, um, love the brethren, hospitality. Every stewardship has had hospitality. Don't fornicate. Every stewardship has been told not to fornicate. Um, be oriented to money properly. Every stewardship has been told these things. But how much more severe our God is a consuming fire. With reverence and with awe, we need to be humble before you in all that we do. And this includes our daily life. This includes our sex life. This includes our, our money life. This includes everything, Father. Our friendships, our hospitality, everything. Thank you for uh, opening our eyes to how serious this is. I thank you and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.